Welcome to episode 40, which is hard to believe, of Supreme Myths. And it is fitting that for episode 40, we have um, Professor Daniel Rodriguez of Northwestern here. He is the Harold Washington Professor of Law. Uh, Dan, of course, was Dean of Northwestern from 2000. 12 to 2018, which seems like a, a pretty good amount of time. Before that, he was dean at San Diego. He taught at numerous other law schools. Um, he was former president of the AALS, um, and he is an expert in administrative law, local government law, statutory interpretation, and a bunch of other things. Dan, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank and, you. And, Honor to be here. And you, know, you and I have had you know, hundreds of discussions over Twitter. Um, and it's and I love then, not meeting, but kind of meeting the in-person someone who I've not met in person before and getting to kind of know them better after just having a Twitter relationship, which is basically what we've had. I feel um, it exactly. My first question, um, do you miss deaning? Wow. You know, uh, the, 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 the fashionable answer would be to say absolutely not no how, no way. Uh, you know, they took the best years of my life, et cetera, et cetera. But, 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 but in truth, there are some times and there are some uh, moments where I do miss deaning. And I'll just say very briefly, this will sound like a rather macabre uh, uh, reason to give. But during the period of time of COVID, uh, which of course happened after I had stepped down as dean and continues, it's not like it's uh, past right. tense, certainly. But I looked at so many of my colleagues, many of whom I'd worked with as deans, just really, really terrific academic leaders, and not only commiserated with what they were going through in this very unique time. Of course, we were all going through this, but deans and leading institutions. But I, but I just had a nagging sense that I, that I wish in some ways that I was in the saddle, if only to add in a small way and contribute in a small way to my institution or another institution when it needed me. So it was during that, those times that, that that there was indeed some part of me that was sort of missing being in a position of being able to be of service as a, as a, as a dean. So mostly that. Um, I have kind of a hard question, which is within the first one minute of the conversation, maybe not a good thing, but I do have a hard question, but I am very curious about it. And you know, I've done some work on the periphery of this. So you were dean at San Diego, which is, uh, by the way, I think one of the most underrated law schools in, in, in the country. Thank you, um, here. <laughs> it's got a great faculty. Obviously, its con law faculty is as strong as any school's con law faculty. Uh, even though I disagree with almost all of them 100%, it's still a very strong faculty. Mike Ramsey and I are good friends despite our yeah. differences. Um, is there a difference between being a dean of a very good, underrated, but clearly not elite law school and an elite law school, which Northwestern clearly is? Yes. I, I, one word answer, there is. And, okay. and let me elaborate briefly. The, yeah. the, uh, the, the opportunities, probably at the very top of the list, is uh, the opportunities that our students have and our graduates have. The terrific mm -hmm. students at, at Northwestern, without, without any uh, equivocation, terrific students at San Diego, uh, many of the students at San Diego were, uh, you know, were, uh, did not have the same opportunities. I, I don't want to be hyperbolic about them. They, they, they managed to come and make their way to a, you know, to a strong law, law school, but it's just different. It's a different, uh, uh, you know, sort of characteristic of, of the student body in, in some ways. What, what students at Northwestern faced in terms of student debt to get to a hot button issue right away, right, right. Is, is significant and challenging. And I, you know, worked on that hard. But you know, it's one thing to have 100, 
of debt to come out of Northwestern when for many of our students, not all of our students, but many of our students are destined to so-called big law practice. Uh, it's another to graduate from San Diego with an equivalent amount of debt where there were just precious fewer of those opportunities given the pecking order of the law schools that I don't need to tell you about. So, so I, I think that that raised some significant challenges uh, that permeated across the uh, across the across the school. So there are many other differences as well. But I think if I had to sort of concentrate a lot of the differences, it would be you know kind of the the opportunity of the student uh, available to the students given rankings and prestige uh, uh, and what that contributed to uh, issues of you know collective esteem, self esteem. Um, uh, you know, things on the Northwestern side that sometimes our students and our faculty, frankly, took for granted. Right. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and the like. So, you know, I, I, I have these two deanships. There are other deans who have been dean at more than one law school, but I can't think of that many of us who have been dean at, and it underlies, I think, the premise of your question here is uh, I can't think of that many deans who have been deans at very different schools in the right. sense right. that, you know, in the sense that I, that I was, uh, uh, I was. Right. Right. Um, that's a great answer, and I appreciate your candor, which may be required for my next question. Um, so, you know, I teach at Georgia State. Um, we are a public law school in downtown Atlanta, um, you know, with a very strong regional presence. That The bottom line is our students get hired by Atlanta law firms, top ones, as much as Emory or Georgia or any place. So in fact, that's true throughout the Southeast, to be honest. Um, obviously, if one wants to go to Seattle, one is probably better off the University of Washington than Georgia State. But, but, but our students do go around the country and all that. Um, I get asked by friends all the time, um, and it used to be children, now sometimes it's grandchildren, which is sad to me, but I get asked all the time, you know, uh, my, my, my daughter or my son has reasonable grades, you know, and, and decent board scores, and they're thinking about going to a law school, um, and they think, and they're trying to choose between, you know, several places. Often the choices are very expensive, non-elite private law schools. And I'm biased because I teach at a public law school with very low tuition. I often say to them, really think hard about that because they're going to come out with a huge amount of debt, which they wouldn't have at, at, a, at a Georgia State or University of Georgia. It doesn't matter, you know, or, or you know, any other public law school. And it, it's going to be a weight around them. And it's not easy to get big law jobs from non-elite private schools. It can be done, but it's not easy and I often feel bad, but I think it's the right answer, which is, if you can, go to a cheaper public school um, or an elite private school. But going to a non-elite private school isn't often the best bang for the buck. I, I, I think that uh, I agree with that advice, and I give much the same advice, Eric, and I think it's the right choice, even understanding the diversity of career ambitions and goals and all of that. Now, there's a however there. Yeah. And a however come, uh, uh, stems from what we're seeing in our world of legal education. You know your experience at Georgia State, University of Georgia, and there are many other examples we could give of schools, public schools, that have uh, relatively low rates of tuition. I emphasize relatively. Low is a little bit in the eye of the beholder, but yeah. by any comparison to private schools. But, but let me be quite candid in saying the number of even public schools that fit that bill are in decline. I taught, began my teaching career, and my wife uh, 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 was a graduate of the same law school, UC Berkeley, what law school formerly known as Bolt Hall, as we say. And uh, she'll kill me because she'll hear this podcast and she'll say it dates me. But she graduated from the law school in the early 1980s, and I started teaching there in the late 1980s. It was really, really a small, I won't call it a cheap law school, but the, but 
there wasn't tuition and the costs were very small. And you could say the same thing about the other UCs. You could say the same things about some very high prestige uh, public schools. You can't say that anymore. The cost to go as an in-state resident in any of the University of California schools, any of the schools in the state of Texas where I taught in such a large number approaches the cost of private schools. Now, it still illustrates your point, which is, well, then the trade-off maybe is because between a very expensive public school and a very expensive private school. But let me say this, for those graduates of, of, of strong undergraduate schools who would rather stay in state, so again, I'm going to use uh, California and Texas, two states I know well, and want to stay in the state in, in those states, want to practice there, and they have wonderful opportunities, great schools to choose from, but they are very expensive, even for in-state in -state residents. And I think if you look at the scandal, and I really think it is a scandal, of the high skyrocketing costs of legal education over the last 20 or 30 years, yes, private schools bear a lot of the blame, yes, we're extremely expensive schools, but it's really the, the, the heart of the scandal, I think, is with public schools and the high rates of, of tuition. Again, exempting the Georgia states, the Georgia, right. the others, to their credit. But so many public schools have, have really uh, have very, very high rates of tuition and it thus have been exclusionary in a way that's, uh, uh, I'll say, uh, if I can uh, permit me this hyperbole, unforgivable. Right. I, you know, Dan, I didn't know that. And that explains something to me. Um, we do fine in U.S. news, all things considered. Not that, um, But it turns out in non-U.S. news rankings, Georgia State itself and University of Georgia, both generally do really, really well. And I think because non-U.S. news rankings takes into account often tuition. Um, it might surprise you. I think our tuition is, I don't know what it is, I'm guessing here, but I think it's about $17,000, I mean, a year, you know, which is... That, that is by any measure, yeah. and I know I'm, I'm not telling you what you don't already know, because you live in, <laughs> we the people of the United States of America, generally, is that's, that, that, that is quite low. And, and again, you could not see, you can, there are other examples, certainly, yeah. but in many states, uh, including states where it's very expensive to live, right. the rates of tuition of public schools have uh, have been uh, uh, very high, and again, I emphasize for in-state residents. That's not right. even speaking of the you know the, you know the cost for yeah yeah. And our tuition is much higher for out of, for out of state, yeah, almost yeah. to lower. Two other questions about deaning, if you can bear with me. Um, yeah, please. So 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 I had Blake Morant on a couple of weeks ago, um, and, and great friend, great friend, and a wonderful academic leader. I can't imagine he wouldn't win a vote of one of the nicest people in legal education if that vote were to be taken. Yep. Uh, and he's I vote. I'd vote for him. <laughs> right. For and him. not to demean his talent, but he, he you know, no, no, he, no. he just he leads yeah. with niceness. That's what he leads with. And Agreed. Agreed. Um, as I told him, we interviewed him in 19. I interviewed him when my second year teaching in 1992. We wanted to hire him so badly, but we didn't have enough money to. We were outbid by a different school. But anyway, Blake and I talked about something I know you're very interested in, I think, which from your Twitter feed, which is polarization in the community and the world, which and how that plays out in law yes. schools and, and, and how or whether we can make any contributions to decreasing polarization. One of the things that I've done in Georgia State out of necessity, which will raise another issue, is our Federalist Society chapter doesn't really we have a technical faculty advisor, but that person's not in con law and not even particularly conservative. Um, I'm their de facto advisor, and I bring in you know all the speakers right. and, the, and all that stuff. I love doing it. I love my students. Um, and then we have joint ACS FedSoc programs, and I, I almost, which is always better than just one or the other, because I'm also on the board of ACS. What can law schools do to 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 to, to help with this obvious 
crisis of polarization that's affecting all of us? Well, it is obvious, and you, you know I share, because we've communicated about this in different ways, uh, share my deep concern about that. I also, I know this is tangential, and so I won't belabor this point, but the polarization, even among some of the groups, you mentioned FedSoc and, and others, I was I was uh, old enough to remember, you know, I was the FedSoc advisor at UC Berkeley, and, and you shouldn't conclude from that that I was all that conservative back then or now, right. but that was just right. a different, you know, it was not, what is it, what commercial about you, not your father's Oldsmobile? It was not your father's FedSoc back then. Right. It's a separate, separate conversation. Right. I think, the, so here's what I think. Uh, and it goes back to, to your question about deaning at these two schools. One thing, there were other things too. One uh, thing that University of San Diego and Northwestern very much shared in common, and it was one of the reasons, frankly, that I came to both schools, because both schools I came from outside the school to be the dean, is they had a reputation, an earned reputation, which by the way, had nothing to do with me, of having a, a ideologically diverse faculty. San Diego had some very prominent, as you know, conservatives uh, uh, on their faculty. I wouldn't call them a majority in, in the area, but strong, uh, articulate uh, voices for you know, uh, a conservative views that that may be unremarkable, except your listeners, many of your listeners are in the legal academy. They'll understand that that is that is somewhat remarkable. And that's also true of Northwestern. And that's not to valorize conservative points of view over non-conservative points of view. It's just to say that the students that are at these two law schools and, and others as well have uh, are exposed to alternative views on some of the hot button issues like in constitutional law and, and others. And I think that regardless of where they come from, ideologically, uh, geographically, whatever, that makes a huge difference in combating polarization. It's very hard, and we know this from all the research we do, it's very hard to demonize folks from a particular political point of view when you're actually engaged with them, when you know them and their family, when you hear them on panels, you know, civil, respectable, you know, vigorous disagreement, surely that too. But when you actually know them and they're in their community, it, it gives a, a sense of, uh, you know, much more ecumenical, I think, approach. And again, I don't want to sugarcoat it. There are, there are certainly still questions of ideological diversity on faculty members. And I don't just mean, you know, with, with uh, discrimination against the right or any of that. I'm talking about the whole overall uh, picture. But I think it takes the, the role modeling that comes from really having a commitment to having a broad and deep, diverse faculty who are teaching your students. And that I think makes a, a very positive difference. And I think the Dean can set a tone uh, of that, but it's mostly in the trenches. It's who you hire, how you treat your faculty uh, when they're there, how you consider alternative viewpoints and who you put on panels. And, you know, I've, I've come late to this view, but I've, you know, subscribed, drank the Kool-Aid as it were. So I'm not, you know, life's too short. I'm not gonna be on panels anymore. I'm not gonna be on, you know, go to conferences where you know, where it's it clearly, I, I think I've earned the right to basically yeah. say, no, you have to, you have to have a diverse, you know, diverse set of viewpoints to, to be on there. And I think that's important. Well, well good for you. And, and I, I, you know, I'm, I won't do rallies. I just won't. In fact, I was joking with Blake Morant. I, I don't go to WLS anymore because I view it really more of a rally than a conference. And Blake twisted my arm when he was president of WLS. Right. He's hard to say no to. <laughs> so he is hard to say no to, and he wanted me, to, and he told me I could be as balanced as I want. And we were doing affirmative action, so I had Ilya Soman, and I had you know uh, um, some other conservatives there, uh, libertarians there. Um, but but generally speaking, I find WLS extremely one-sided, and I think that's a shame. And you also know, I think, when you you use the word discrimination, um, but I agree with that. I, I think our 
I think the legal academy discriminates against conservatives who are on in, in who are in your face conservative, unless they have a Supreme Court clerkship, um, and they're from a top five or eight or maybe ten law school. I think if you're a conservative, it's, 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 it's harder. Yeah, yeah e- even if you're a conservative student from Northwestern who gets a very good court of appeals clerkship, you're not getting a teaching job. Probably, unless you unless there's something else remarkable about you, and you're certainly not getting a teaching job at an elite school. Um, no, unless you're unless you're a bit of a Trojan horse, right? Where you where maybe you come in from, you know, not uh, writing about or teaching about, you know, more much more hot button issues until you're established. Right. I can think of some examples in in teaching law teaching, including at UC Berkeley where I was, where so I didn't know that person was so conservative. Now they're writing about it because you know tacitly what they're saying is I wouldn't have hired him. If I, if I knew they were going to come, come here and write about those issues, and that's a shame. Now, Eric, I, I, uh, forgive me for jumping in on this, because I know maybe it's not the, the venue for this, but I want to give you a really important uh, uh, acknowledgement here. You know, your engagement, we got to know each other on social media, maybe we'll talk about social media in a bit, but your willingness to be in the arena and engage with folks across an ideological uh, divide, which I know hasn't been easy because I read, you know, I read some of the social media posts is really remarkable. And I think we could do more of that. I know you do. And I do have a very eclectic uh, group of, of followers and people I follow. It's painful sometimes, painful to, you know, to, to, to even read uh, and lurk on that to say nothing of engaging them. But I think you set the tone in your own engagement, uh, and if more faculty did that, I think that would be make a huge difference with respect to polarization. So. Well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. I it's really, I mean, it is somewhat for my students, but it's mostly out of self interest. I get bored talking to people. I'm not interested in talking to people who, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I mean, that's. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, there's a time and place for that. But overall, it's it's. it's I don't I don't do it for any. I mean, I do do it because I think it's important for our students. But also, I enjoy it more. Who wouldn't enjoy it more? I don't understand if you're – anyway. Um, one last question about Deaning. Um, I, know, I know you know that I wrote a piece with Adam Feldman. He did all the math. I did the writing. Um, with just alarming statistics that, that the top 10 ranked U.S. news law schools in 2019, every single law professor in those top 10 ranked schools who had an American law degree – 94.8 came from a top 10 law school, and 50% came from Harvard and Yale. And um, as someone who's been dean of an elite law school as well as a not-as-elite law school, I, I'm curious. I, I, I view that as so problematic on, on forgetting the on, on just racial and class grounds because we know that, the, that you have to ace the LSAT to get into one of those schools and if you don't get into one of those schools, you're not teaching a top 10 school, no matter what you do forever for the rest of your life. I, I view this as a serious problem in legal education. I was shocked when progressive friends of mine at both Harvard and Yale, who I talked to for this article, brushed it off. Like, yeah, you know, we do our best. I mean, they didn't care. And I thought that was just, I mean, what's your view on this? So here's a, there's some daylight between our views, uh, yours yeah. and mine, some daylight. First of all, I would never brush it off. I think the statistics that you guys uh, pulled together uh, is not shocking, but is is jarring, and it reinforces that the the rich get richer phenomenon, which I regard on in this dimension as well as many dimensions, you and I absolutely agree, is a serious, severe social problem. So we start with the same premises. So why do I say there's some daylight between those views? And I should say, in the interest of disclosure, you know, I graduated from Harvard Law School. 
Now, I also graduated from community college in California State University right. at Long Beach. Right. So I, I right. you know, as a first generation college graduate. So, so, you know, I mean, let, less, not to the manner born, let's put it that way. Uh, no, no, I think, but, I'm glad but, you pointed that out. I, I meant to point that out, actually, and I forgot. So yeah, no, no, but for, so, so let, let me focus on where there's some daylight. I think it's a problem, but I, but I still believe, and maybe you and I have had this exchange, that we, what we're still looking for in terms of who, who we're hiring, in terms of you know, law schools, wherever we are in the pecking order, are folks who have the skills to be able to succeed, right? Now that, that evolves what success means, but it means at the very least, I think you know, high-level teaching, scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the fact, of, the fact is that the more uh, elite the law school, the tendency is to have more of the kind of, of access to opportunity and resources and all of that that enables one to prosper, which is why we take, uh, you and I advise the inner city kid who has the opportunity to go to Stanford and, right. you know, if it's financially, to go to Stanford, <laughs> right? I mean, just, and, and so there's part of me, a big part of me that says the problem is in terms of the access to those schools, your point about ACE and the LSAT and providing pipelines and all of that, it's access to those schools rather than in some broad sense democratizing uh, you know, the, the inputs to, to, to law teaching jobs and law firm jobs for that matter, so that we hire from 30 or 40. I think there has to be a balance. Of course, I'd like to see graduates from the University of San Diego uh, and University of Texas and Northwestern that even as elite schools, the last two I mentioned are underrepresented, have greater opportunities. But it's only if we can figure out how to do the kinds of things that the highest, highest end schools, you know, uh, do to inculcate the values and advantages of our students. So one just quick point is, I mean, you know, it's been more, uh, I, I've heard the criticisms of visiting assistant professorship, so-called VAPs, as also reinforcing that elitism. And I, and I understand that critique. There's critiques about, gen, you know, mobility. There's critiques about access to information. I totally get that. On the other hand, the opportunities that graduates of law schools get from having a couple of years working in a visiting assistant professorship, I think is advantageous and does give them a leg up. And it doesn't have to be an unfair leg up if the opportunities are available to a wider, greater. So we're agreeing on the premises. I think this is really about the technology of implementation to get from here to there uh, in, in regard to that. And let me, let me just add, and maybe we'll get to this topic, uh, uh, I think that, uh, you know, we should face front on the need for uh, a racially inclusive uh, uh, admissions. And if you want to call that affirmative action, let's call it affirmative action. And rather than try to put that under a rock, let's call it for what it is, which is providing access and opportunity. And, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of that uh, and, and, and believe it's consistent with the law. And we should, you know, we should do that in order to widen uh, access. I wouldn't be where I was if not for uh, policies that that put in place some some degree of preference, and I I completely acknowledge that, and hopefully have done the best with the opportunities presented to me. Um, well, you certainly have. Um, that was number like twelve on my list, but let's go there now because um, uh, I had a very unpleasant. It's been a long time too since I've had this kind of unpleasant experience on Twitter that I had yesterday. Um, it's really been years actually since I. I mean, it's been a long time, and it's with somebody who I've been following, and they've been following me for a decade. I, I had to block this person, and I, I, I hate doing that. I almost never do it. Um, I do it occasionally when people get personal, but that wasn't the problem. We were having this debate about Harvard's, the Harvard case and the affirmative action yeah. problem there, and 
course, that's a very different case, very complicated, because it's about discrimination against Asians as opposed to discrimination against, against whites, which is very alleged discrimination, which is very different. But anyway, sure. and he kept repeating that Harvard had admitted that discriminates against Asians. I kept saying, no, Harvard has not admitted that, and you're misleading people in my timeline. We can disagree about affirmative action, but we can't disagree about whether Harvard has... I even cited the brief and everything, and he still kept saying it. It wasn't fair to my fo- to people who follow me, who are not lawyers, a lot of them, to see this information that three times I said, but here's my question. So Title VI, Harvard's not bound by the Constitution, we all know that, but, but Title VI, for the listeners... Um, uh, Title VI is a law that says no university that receives federal funds can discriminate on the basis of race. It, it applies to all, uni- all universities, I think, get federal money. It certainly applies to Harvard. And I, I looked at that case very carefully. And, 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 and there's no question that the LSAT and GPA standards that Asians have to meet to get into Harvard are different than the LSAT and GPA standards that all other racial groups have to meet. That, so that's a true statement. But it's also true that Harvard makes a lot of decisions not based on LSAT and GPA, that it's a false paradigm that mu- many of their alums' kids don't have those scores and grades, big donors, et cetera. Um, and so we were having this debate about, is that discrimination? And I, I don't think it is. And I'm curious about your view on that. No, I, I agree with that entirely. Just briefly on, you know, uh, the trope, and it really is a trope yeah. about discrimination against Asians. Yeah. It's deja vu all over, over again. When I was at UC Berkeley, you know, a long time ago, so you know, this goes back a quarter century, the argument was made in exactly those terms. UC Berkeley has admitted they were discriminating against Asians. And then you would sort of probe and investigate exactly what, what was the so-called admissions and all of that. And it just didn't stand to reason. Uh, there was a sense of, well, if there's smoke, there's fire uh, with respect to that. And, but that simply was belied by the facts then. And we're seeing here in the same trope now. You know, it's a very, I don't pick, you and I don't pick the litigation strategy for the conservative anti-affirmative action movement. Right. But if we were giving them unsolicited advice, I would. I would say, you know, I understand why you want the big ticket item, which is Harvard University. And, you know, because it's going to be on the front page of the New York Times and all of that. But isn't it an odd uh, case to pursue for precisely the reason you give? Harvard and, and some of the most elite of the elite at the undergraduate level have their choice of perfect ACT, SAT folks right. who've done all the things, who've, who've you know, run all the clubs, all of that. So they're already in that echelon. Even Northwestern does. We admit less than 70%, of, seven, seven, sorry, percent of the people who apply. So wow. we, it's table stakes that these are high achieving students. And by the way, the folks who apply and are competitive for the most elite schools who are members of minority groups have, are, have also accomplished extraordinary things, right? The Harvard applicant pool is not your typical applicant pool. Right. And frankly, without digressing, I worry a lot less about them than I do about the folks who can't go to the community college right. that I applied to. That's, <laughs> but that's a different story. So when you're in that grouping, of course Harvard is going to make uh, choices that are not uh, non-numerical based. And, you know, again, I've seen some of the data. You've seen some of the data. I've tried to follow that case reasonably closely. And you, you crunch the data and look at the numbers. Unless you believe there's this smoking gun of 10 witnesses who are going to testify, you know, we look at an Asian applicant or Asian-American applicant with all these, and we put them to the bottom of the pile because I admit we discriminate against Asians, right? That's, of course, absurd. So, of course, they're making 
judgments on the basis of a variety of criteria. Bakke seems like an old chestnut case in many respects, right? The Regents of the University of California. But there's something that Justice Powell acknowledged in that old chestnut of a case that still have resonance now, which is the, 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 the goal and the agenda and objective of well-meaning colleges and universities is to look at the entire pool and make sure you have a diverse group of students, which, wait for it, we all know is advantageous for the entire community, for the classmates, right. for the teachers. That was true 50 years ago. <laughs> it remains true now. Maybe Justice O'Connor uh, is, is, is right that that'll wither away uh, uh, in, what is it now, 10 years, I guess we're close to coming up yeah, to that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I'm not hopeful. <laughs> I'm not it's, hopeful it's, either. So, so, so Harvard is aspiring to do that. Now, the law and the judges will tell us whether or not they've gone too far and, and, and whether they've crossed the line and whether they need to go back, you know, just as the court and Gruder and, and Gratz did. But that's not your question, is whether they, they got the balance wrong. Right. Right. It's whether or not this is some elaborate scheme to, you know, to defraud whites right. and Asians right. in the applicants. And, and, and that, I think, is, is, is really uh, pushes it too far. I, I appreciate your perspective on that. And, you know, I've been around long enough, 31 years here at Georgia State, where when I, when I started, Georgia State was less than 10 years old. So even though we're in down, even though we're in down, yeah, we, I, you know, part of my, um, I will retire knowing that I helped build an institution, which is a nice, a nice feeling. Um, but, um, you know, in the, in the 90s, I got here in 91, in the even mid late 90s, when people really didn't know about us, it was still hard to attract, you know, the, 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 the um, qualified, diverse students. It was, it was, right. it was still hard. So I remember teaching con law too, teaching affirmative action, teaching abortion, teaching race and class and con law too, to a room full of 95% white students or 90% white students. That experience and teaching today at Georgia State where we are 35%, I think, people of color, I think it's the wrong expression, but we're 35% non-white, is just immeasurably different for everybody in the room, mostly the whites. I mean, that's the that's the amazing thing to me is I see my white students evolve is too strong a word, but I see the recognition in some of them on the difficulty of these issues that they would not see were not for someone in the room explaining their personal history, story, perspective on these kinds of issues. And I don't know how anybody can disagree with that. I mean, it's just it seems right. obvious to me. Well, it's it's it's. You know, it's really, really worrisome, and, and there's no glib way to put it. It's the opposite of glib. It's really worrisome. If we have, uh, God help us, the natural experiment of a complete eradication of racial preferences by, by, by judgments of more than one Supreme Court case, we'll see what it's like. Yeah. That's what the, the briefs that were influential in the, uh, arguably influential, uh, in the, uh, in the, the Gruder case, said, which is, let's see what happens to the military. Let's see what happens to corporate America. Let's see what happens to these places when, in the absence of these preferences, we get exactly what we get, which is certainly among our elite institutions and many others, a lily white, I don't know if that's an expression anymore, but (laughs) a lily white uh, 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 student body. I think that's the, and that's what, that's what Richard Sander, who's a really, I mean, he's a terrific social scientist and deeply involved in these issues. But that, I think, is what he misses in the mismatch theory. He sees that from the vantage point of the students, you know, who, will, who he thinks will cascade to, you know, what he regards as just the right place. But what's left in its wake in terms of what happens in these institutions that now become not at all diverse 
right. is, I think, the, the, the key missing element in that whole analysis. Yeah, I, well said. Speaking of Richard Sander, he's another example. I, I had never met him until three weeks ago. And I, yep. I, 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 I was very honest with him. Hate is a strong word, but I really don't like his work. And, I, and, and unlike most academic work, it's actually found its way to the real world. You know, I mean, you know, when most of us write, we can debate in the halls of academia, nobody cares. His work has been influential. And we had a pre-debate meeting, and I, he was obviously a nice guy, and we got along. Alum of Northwestern Law School, by the right, way. Right, right, okay. And we had a very civilized debate while disagreeing as much as people can disagree on the substance. And we even found some common ground about rate, about class and some other things. Right. Why can't, I mean, that's how it should be. Like, that's how it's, that's, that's, that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, that's, that's, how, that, work. That, that's how it's supposed to work. Um, all right. I appreciate your thoughts about affirmative action. I wish, um, I, I, I think you're very articulate about that. I hope if the Supreme Court takes this Harvard case, which I'm hoping it does not, and I just wrote a blog post yesterday saying they shouldn't, I hope you become a public voice on this. I think your voice would be helpful uh, on this. Um, well, you know, you know, you know, it's powerful when you say you were I, the beneficiary is the wrong word for me. You, with without that mindset, you might not be where you are, and you should be where you are. And then I get to my ultimate irony, which is the leading advocate against affirmative action in this in the United States, Clarence Thomas. We all know wouldn't be where he is were it not for affirmative. He admits that affirmative action. And he has done so much for conservative pe- blacks. I mean, he has. I, I, I can't stand the guy, but he's a great role model for a lot of people. He wouldn't be there were it not for, and yet he wants to, it's very frustrating. Anyway, you did a tweet the other, changing subjects. You did a tweet the other day, yeah. I, and, I, and I, if I get it wrong, correct me, because I was so happy with this tweet. Um, and I couldn't believe you oh, said well, it. Oh, and I certainly won't, won't try to miss yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think you and I are the only people in America who might believe what I'm about to say, other oh, than yeah, people. I think I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other than people who spend their lives dedicated to the separation of church and state, like Americans United yeah. and all that. I think you tweeted that either there should never be or almost never be religious exemptions to, the, to, to, to a vaccine requirement in the context of COVID, which I agree with 100%. Yeah. Do you really believe that? Because I want to hug you if you really believe that. You know, I, Eric, I really do believe that. I come at these issues as a as a, a very religious person. Now, ordinarily, that would be entirely beside the point. But I feel sort of compelled to mention that, not to, you know, be up, sure. up on a soapbox. <laughs> sure. that's, but simply to say, I come at this issue from someone who believes that religious liberty is, is extraordinarily important. Absolutely. Particularly for for uh, more minority religions. I'm a Catholic, so I don't fall into that category. But, you know, for all those reasons, and I'm more sympathetic, I suspect you and I might disagree on some of the religious liberty precedents over the course of, you know, there's so many, it's easy to find ones we could disagree about. But but fundamentally, I think that, that, uh, that, you know, the court uh, had it right, you know, on the whole in in accepting that religiously, uh, that even Justice Scalia, Right. And, and others that that laws of general applicability are uh, are, uh, if not immune, that are not subject to the kinds of strict scrutiny. And I think that when you're talking about, I would add to that laws of general applicability that have to do with important exercises of the state's police power to deal with public health, especially so. Now, it's true that the Jacobson case about which much you know we, we argue so much about vaccines didn't involve a religious exemption case. But I would hope even 
if we had the Wayback Machine, that the court back in 1905 would acknowledge that smallpox and such, and over the years, was a compelling public health emergency and didn't require religious exemptions. So I think that, that you know, that's my overall view. And here I have a really quirky view. <laughs> and, and I can't find that many people who, who, who su support me either at the level of doc doctrine or at the level of normative view. As a religious person, I think it absolutely trivializes and mocks uh, organized religion and those who are faithful uh, uh, in their religion to use the, the, this absolutely uh, uh, baseless uh, uh, argument uh, for uh, exemptions to uh, vaccines, a COVID vaccine, and to source it in religion. Not, none of the mainstream religions do, not even the Christian scientists, who of course you know, have their history with respect yes. to uh, support strong uh, religious exemptions, except, except maybe just for those religions that say, we'll always want the religious exemptions because we don't trust the power of the state. So I actually think it undermines not only all of the public health considerations that, you know, I hope that goes without saying, but it also undermines and trivializes uh, palpable religious arguments that sometimes are necessary for the kinds of exemptions that protect religious liberty. So I see nothing really in advantage of, of, of that. And, and I'll simply say that, that you don't have to take my word for it. The University of Michigan, I saw this this article a couple of years ago, I think I, I a couple of weeks ago, sorry, that I attached to a tweet that indicated that they had more than 9,000 uh, requests as of a few weeks ago for religious exemptions for the uh, for the vaccine. I said in my class, probably more glibly than was than was necessary for the circumstances. That tells me one of two things: either contrary to my view, the University of Michigan is the most religious you know, <laughs> student body. You know, instead right. of any right. law school uh, or any university right. in America, or there's game playing going on. Right. And we right. can't play games with the, you know, with the, with the pandemic. Right. So, so. Yeah. I mean, for, for, for non-lawyers listening, you know, there's all, even for core fundamental constitutional rights and religious exemptions may or may not be that, there's always a compelling interest. I mean, test. If the government has a compelling interest and is using narrow means, no constitutional right survives that. Um, and it seems to me if this isn't, I mean, if this isn't compelling, I don't know what is compelling. Um, your, your, your discussion about your faith and, 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 and the role it plays brought me back in time a little bit. This might interest you. Um, so when I was at the Department of Justice in the late 80s, I had a big parochial school aid case that I was defending. Back then, the issue was, does it violate the Establishment Clause? Not, does parochial school aid amount to a right under the Free Exercise Clause, which is the current Right, exactly. It's changed a lot since you were yes, at Yes, Justice. but leaving all that inside, I was litigating against Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which is an organization that sounds that does exactly what it sounds, Americans United against, I mean, for Separation of Church and State. The lawyer was Lee Boothby. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, a very mm -hmm. religious person. And we actually became friends, even though we were, because we it was back in the day when you could become friends with people you disagree with, you know, or other side. It was nice. But he, and I'm not, I'm not a person of faith, but he was a deep person of faith. And he would, we'd have lunches where he would explain to me why he devoted his life to what he was devoting his life to. And it was because he was religious that he felt government entanglement with religion, unless absolutely necessary, is a really bad idea. And that religion thrives best when left alone. 
both in terms of penalties and benefits, but when it's but when it's treated equally with everybody else, not greater, not lesser, just the same. And he had a big impact on me, to be honest, because he was a deep person of faith, devoting his life to fighting against aid for religious institutions, because he That's thought so that yeah. yeah, he thought that actually took the religion out of those institutions. Not that's overstating it, but you know, it, it made them wards of the state in a way he thought was very dangerous to religion, not to secular people. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I, I simply that, say this: not only was he ahead of his time, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and I'm not trivializing that position, yeah. but he was certainly more, uh, not only more courageous, but more uh, insightful than I was uh, and am. And I, I say, what I mean by that is this. It only really dawned on me as I started to learn more about the Supreme Court jurisprudence and reading these cases that were, you know, that we won't get in the weeds about because it would take us all day. But yeah. these cases that were constantly, you know, masterpiece case. I mean, you know, choose your yeah. choose your favorite. Right. And uh, it just seemed to me that that we were we were and are in a very uh, dangerous situation. I'll just mention the COVID cases. I think what the Supreme Court has done in its so-called shadow docket. Uh, in cases like Tandon and Roman Archdiocese uh, are very problematic. And for them to do that in the midst of the pandemic, I, I don't have anything to add to Justice Kagan's dissents in those cases and so do Mario and Breyer. I mean, they're playing with fire. They're really playing with fire uh, in, in, in those cases. And so I, I have my view about religious exemptions, but I am by no means confident that that view would command the majority of the court. In fact, I, I'm, I, there's a reason why doctrinalists you know, kind of smack me around and say, you know, your your argument for sincerity and arguing for bona fide, that's so cute, Dan Rodriguez, but that ship has sailed. Uh, they could be right. <laughs> I'm not saying they're they're wrong in terms of the jurisprudence of the court. And, and uh, so now I'm, this is a self-serving question, so I apologize. But do you, so I wrote a piece for a symposium in Kentucky, and I don't understand why I can't get more textualists on board on this. We'll talk about textualism in a second. That'll be our last subject. But, um, you know, the, the First Amendment talks about the free exercise of religion. All of the riffers that I know of talk about the free exercise of religion. And I did a lot of research on what that means. You know what I found? Nothing. <laughs> I mean, I found <laughs> with, all, with all of the forests that have been burned about exemptions, in which there's, a, you know, we've done. To me, having a religious conscious, ob, conscience, a sincere religious conscience objection to a secular act is not the same thing as the free exercise of religion. They are different things. If the government puts an obstacle in my way to church, that's free exercise. If they tax me more than others, that's free exercise. If they make it harder for me to pray, worship, even use wine during communion, that's free exercise. There's nothing the government can say about widgets that selling them makes that free exercise. Yeah, the wedding cake I'm with you. Do you agree? I, I, I absolutely agree with you. You know, uh, unlike you're the only you, one, I, I, there's two. Well, <laughs> there, there's two, but you know, you're a specialist in, in, in constitutional law. I, I barely play one on TV. So <laughs> I have to acknowledge uh, in the face of folks who, who study, you know, I don't mean this it, it condescending. I mean the opposite, trying to be, you know, uncharacteristically humble. Uh, <laughs> I don't, you know, haven't lived and, and dwelled in the land of religious liberty jurisprudence for quite so long. So I accept when folks say, you know, that you're you're approaching this, and maybe they'd say the same thing about you, you're approaching this kind of tabula rasa without, you know, the 40 years of, of religious liberty jurisprudence. You know, sometimes approaching these issues tabula rasa 
is the right approach. That's why comparative constitutionalism is so interesting because you get somebody from another country and right. they, they come here and say, I don't understand the 10th Amendment, explain it to me. <laughs> right. Oh, I don't understand this and that. And then, you, then you're like trying to explain it to them and you're like, yeah, well, that's kind of hard to explain or, or whatever, <laughs> choose, your, choose your favorite example. Well, with, your tabula rasa point's a great one, Dan. And, and it's so interesting to me because I, would, I, I have no problem with someone like David Strauss at Chicago you know, yelling at me, you're ignoring all the Supreme Court cases and everything else. But when textualists, which are the ones who do it, <laughs> yell at me, yeah, and I say, have you read it? I mean, it doesn't say conscience. It says exercise. Can we discuss that for a minute, please? I had McCon- Michael McConnell on this, you know, um, yeah. and, and of course he's a big proponent of religious exemptions. Um, and, and, you know, his view historically is that they meant conscience when they said exercise. And maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but it's not what they said. And I would like what to think textualists would care about what they said. Uh, okay. That's um, what textualists say they care about. <laughs> so I, I want to ask you a little bit about statutory interpretation because you, you've done yeah. a lot of thinking about that. And then one last incredibly controversial question about Justice Please. Scalia, and then we'll go. Yeah. Um, so. When Bostock, which is the case where Title VII was extended to cover discrimination based on sexual orientation and transgender status, when that was being um, heard by the court, and and of course, Posner had that case years before, so it's been, you know, controversial for a long time. Highly case, yeah. Yeah. You and I actually both said one thing, I think, that is so obviously true that nobody else said, which is, it's hard. (laughs) Like, this is a hard question. It's not an, anyone who thinks this is easy, and yeah. frankly, Dan, most of the famous con law profs I know thought it was easy in one direction or the other, or statutory interpretation experts thought it was easy. I was surprised yeah. Eskridge thought it was so easy. It's not that easy. So, my, so, yeah. so tell me what you mean by textualism and whether you are a textualist and whether you yeah. think we can get anywhere by dividing the world into textualists and purpose of this, because I don't think we can, but go ahead. Sure. Let me let me take the second first, second first, and then third. I am not a textualist. Okay. Uh, and I understand textualism as developed and 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 practiced, you know, by Justice Scalia and 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 you know, I don't know if acolytes is meant as an insult. I don't mean it such, but you know, those who worked on that and probably is seen its 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 most comprehensive and scholarly and thoughtful. You know, manifestation in the work of Dean John Manning, you know, and others as well. Yeah. I, I see that as you know having really two parts. One is is a view of statutory interpretation that Manning and Scalia and others believe is compelled by the Constitution. So it trades on a view that itself is originalist and deeply embedded in the Constitution. So that Constitution demands textualism, and we should believe that the original right. meaning, etc., of the Constitution demands textualism and statutory interpretation. I think there's a lot of reasons why that's flawed including the reasons that you and I agree with, which is that originalism, you know, turtles all the way down point. Yeah, but, yeah, I think, yeah. but I think that, you know, having looked at a lot of those debates over a long period of time, I don't think you can conclude from some language from Alexander Hamilton and the Federalists <laughs> that, uh, that textualism is, is constitutionally mandated. The second, and to me, the more interesting aspect, and that leads me not to, not to uh, believe in textualism as a right approach, is that it functions as an exclusionary rule. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's one thing to say that when the text is clear, unambiguous, uh, all of that, that we follow it and we move on to the next case. There are indeed easy cases, as far as I as, as far as I believe, whether in the, they're in the Supreme Court. Most of them don't get up to the Supreme Court, but found. It's another to say, though, that when there is any ambiguity, as there often is, 
that the resort to extra textual evidence uh, and context, uh, which can mean many different things. It runs the gamut from legislative history, which is, of course, quite controversial, to canons of statutory interpretation, to evolving social meanings and all of that. To regard that as absolutely verboten, as out of, as out of line, in the same way the judge rules a piece of evidence out of line, I think is, a, is, a, is deeply pernicious. And, uh, and really what, again, Dean Manning means, and Justice Scalia comes to mean, although there's some ambiguity in his own views about that, by textualism. So the, the, the obviously and trivially true part, which is we should follow text as the best exemplar of what, of what a statute meant. Okay, let's all agree on that. Most of us agree on that. Uh, uh, I'm enough of a you know, believer in, in the commands of the, the edicts of Congress to believe in that. To, to use that though as an exclusionary rule and to do so really on two, on two views. One is uh, uh, I think just amateur political science. And that is the view that we can never learn anything about the context, that it's all what Judge Leventhal famously said. And I hate this quote, even though it's so incredibly memorable, is that legislative history is like looking over a crowded room and picking out your friends. If you believe it's completely, utterly chaos, then, 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 you, know, then you believe that uh, external context doesn't matter. So you either have to believe that there's nothing you can learn from external context, and I don't believe that, or you have to believe that it is constitutionally impermissible to look at outside context. And I also don't believe in that. So it makes me very much want to reject uh, and, and, and reject textualism as the sort of iconic view of, of statutory interpretation. Having rejected it, of course, the burden is on me and others to say, well, what do you have in its place? And that's a fair, that's a fair question for anyone, whether it's Judge Posner or it's, or it's, yeah. you know, or it's, yeah. it's Bill Eskridge yeah. or anybody or me uh, to say, well, what's, what's, the, what's the alternative? Um, and I would ask you that question if we have time, but I don't. But I thought that was a remarkably lucid statement about that, so about statutory interpretation. Um, when I did some research a long time ago, um, I found something interesting about the founding and, and, and debates at the founding, and then back to the 1930s. The big debate used to be between judges having the right to use extrinsic, that's what they called it, extrinsic information versus just limited to intrinsic information. And that's kind of the debate we're having today. Um, and we've had it forever. Like, in other words, that debate was the same in the founding as it was. So those who claimed that the founding supports one side or the other, they're just being silly. I mean, it's just not. No doubt about it. Not to and mention, I'm, by the way, Eric, pre-founding. You know, these yeah. debates go back yeah. to Blackstone and they go sure. back to, if you really want to, and Coke and, sure. and you know, all sorts of, sorts of sure. you know, views Absolutely. have been arguing about that forever. Uh, and so I'm going to segue into my last question by mentioning, which, yeah. which I, so I send my, all my guests kind of a very rough roadmap before these things, and then we, you know, we, you, we follow it or we don't. I did not send you this question. Uh-oh. You, you might refuse to answer it, which I would understand. Quaking in my boots. <laughs> um, Segwaying to, but from textualism, it always amazed me that Scalia thought that legislative history was too unreliable um, to use. In fact, and he was in favor of totally excluding, excluding legislative history. But his originalism, which required in Heller, for example, going over hundreds of years of history and, and, and thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people talking about an issue is not somehow too difficult to parse. That inconsistency always struck me as very strange. So speaking of Scalia, here's my question to you. Um, I wrote a blog post a month ago, which is by far the most read blog post I've ever written times 100 percent, 200 percent. 
where I made a very long list of things Scalia said and did while he was a justice. And this list included things like um, comparing homosexual conduct to murder, which he did, things like saying the, the preclearance requirements of the Voting Rights Act is a racial entitlement. It includes in-person things, like a gay Princeton student who said to him, why did you compare homosexual conduct to murder, to which Scalia could have said, and he was obviously, obviously very upset, according to the, the reports I've read, to which Scalia could have said, I understand why you're upset about that. I don't think homosexual conduct is murder. I was trying to make a legal analogy. It's what we as judges do. I didn't mean to. He didn't respond that way at all. In fact, he said, it's a form of argument. I don't apologize for what I said. I would do it again, basically. To this poor kid standing there, you know, I'm sure it took a lot of... And then there's 15 other things. Why are we honoring this man still who in our time, I'm not talking, but we have to judge Supreme Court judges by the times in which they lived. We can't judge 1930s Supreme Court justices by the racial LGBTQ standards of today. That would be preposterously wrong and stupid. But Scalia's comments all came in the last 30, 35 years. There are many more from the ones I've said to you. I have two questions, then we'll call it a day. Why do we still honor yeah. this man? And second, if you were dean of Northwestern again, and someone came to you with $20 million for a chair, and I said, and, and you called me up, and I said, Dan, here's the list of things Scalia did in the last 25 years, and there were really like 15 awful things on that list. Would you accept the money? Yeah. So, so let me take the, they're both hard questions. Let me take the less hard one first. Uh, uh, you know, again, I, I can't, I can't speak for those who celebrate them in quite the way you're describing because, you know, I'm not in that category. Uh, I, I don't know as I, you know, I, I think your thoughtful collection and, and, and others as well is important and meaningful. These are not things that you excavated Woodward and Bernstein like. Right. Uh, these are things <laughs> right. that he has made in, in, in public statements right. and he should, even as, he, as may he rest in peace, should as anybody, that's part of their legacy and right. it is a legacy that, that, you know, those statements that you've made and others are hard, indeed, impossible to explain away, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of them. I can only say, as an armchair, you know, kind of sociologist of, you know, yeah. of legal profession, that's all I can be. Is that it's there? There's a bracketing. There's, you know, this iconic figure leading a movement, right, in the law, uh, the movement of originalism, the movement of this that says it's this is the focal point. It's only the focal point. And again, I'm not going to justify this, but I think it's probably not unlike saying we, we you know, we valorize, uh, as I do and many do, FDR, even though FDR is responsible for for uh, uh, rounding up uh, uh, right. uh, Japanese Americans. We valorize right. Earl Warren. You know, we could go through this list, right, yeah. and find folks. And I'm not trying to make a make a normalization point, sure. but I think sure. there's, you know, the tendency is to is to limit the scope of that uh, of that focus. In that in that way, and I and I agree with you, it's problematic. I think on the last question, so I'm gonna, you know, this is the way I would jujitsu what you say a little bit, Eric. Uh, uh, I I would find that problematic uh, to you know to take a big gift to name to name a law school. I would find it problematic for the re for for the reasons you've described in terms of that aspect of the legacy. But I think there would be a wider principle that would lead me to be reticent. Uh, to name a, a uh, law school over other any justice, and again, I'm not trying to say they're all the same, and they're all, right. but uh, but because of their legacies, 
Epstein legacies that are almost universally controversial. Hey, if they're not controversial, then you're probably naming the school over an obscure justice that no one's right. ever heard of. Now, right. I say that fully knowing that during the period of time in which I was dean, I raised money and named a law school after somebody who's now the governor of the state. Right. So I, I, my, you know, I've, I'm already on record as right. being willing to accept for that. But, but I think we're on the same wavelength. I think it's highly problematic. Uh, you know, I wasn't sitting, of course, where, where the dean and the president, George Mason, uh, was. But uh, from my own sense, because you asked me about me, not about yeah. George Mason, yes. about, you know, naming the school with all the resonance that goes along with that is highly problematic. And the most important reason it's problematic is, is its identity with students who come in. And so it's the LGBTQ student who comes in to a school named after someone who has expressed the views you've, you've, uh, right. you've expressed. And I can think of my own origin story. You can think of your own origin story. Right. What, what, what must that be like right. you know, in, in that environment? And why would you, from a purely pragmatic point of view, want to, want to do that in a way that would narrow and exclude folks given that legacy? And, that, and that's really um, part of why I asked, because um, I was asking in the context of Harvard giving a chair um, and the, the, the Anton Scalia yeah. chair was filled last year by my friend, Steve Sachs, at, who was at Duke and now at Harvard. Steve and I have debated in front of federal judges five times. I really like yeah. him. He's a really thoughtful person. I, ta I called him months ago and said, I'm going on this vendetta against Scalia. It's not personal. You know, you don't have a racist, sexist bone in your body. He doesn't. Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of you to say that to him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's yeah. a terrific guy uh, and really smart. Um, but I wonder how he would react to an LGBTQ student who raises his hand in the class and says, Justice Scalia is comparing homosexual conduct to murder. I want to criticize that because I think that's wrong, but you have his name. <laughs> what, is, what is Steve going to do? And, and, I, and I, 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 Steve's a very thoughtful person. I'm sure he'll handle it well, but I don't know if there's anything he can do. I don't know what he can say in the face of that. Yeah. Um, Look, I have, anyway. I have, I have, I know we're running out of time. I'll just say very quickly, yeah. I have, in, in fact, the opposite situation, and I'm proud of it. I have my name attached to, you know, not a perfect, none of us are, all yeah. of us in God's image, in my religion, yes. are flawed and deeply yes. sinners. But, but you know, someone, Harold Washington, who's just, uh, you know, enormously important, yeah. iconic figure, first African-American yeah. mayor, I'm proud every single day that I yeah. have a chair named after him. If, yeah. uh, uh, if it were a different person, yeah. Uh, then, you know, it would be problematic for just the reasons you said, whether it's the school, you know, I don't know if you remember this story, Janet Halley at Harvard gave a speech when she got the Isaac Royal chair at Harvard. This was a man who, of course, owned slaves and was, yeah. you know, hugely, and she used it as an occasion. It's a really remarkable story to give an enormous lecture and speech against the royal family. Talk about biting the hand that feeds you. Right. Right. So maybe Professor Sachs, who knows what he'll do, but maybe right. having this chair will give him give right. him a launching pad to be very critical of Justice Scalia. Stranger things have happened. Well, he and I have had so many in-person, great, wonderful, civil disagreements and debates. I'm hoping I have I won't talk to him about this. I don't think that's fair. Um, but he knows he I know he's read my stuff, and and, and I, I I hope it at least gives him pause in how he deals yeah. with what could be some very hard and should be, I think, some very hard questions. Last point about Harvard, even compared to Northwestern or Cornell or Duke, Harvard has so much money. I mean, its endowment is so insanely large. They didn't need someone to yes. give a chair to hire Steve Sachs. They, they you know, they- True. <laughs> that's, no, no, that's, uh, uh, of course, there's, there's an honoring function. You're quite right. 
that is that yep. is not about the money, but it's about the honoring of uh, of of Justice Scalia. Uh, the dean is, of course, a former clerk of, of Justice Scalia. Right. I'm not suggesting right. anything wrong by that fact, but there's a whole right. absolutely. Right. I think that's. Right. I think and, that's, and, and in, that's in case people, exactly right. in, in case there are friends of Steve listening, uh, I think Steve deserves to be a chaired professor at Harvard. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I agree with that, too. I, I just wish he wasn't the Anthony Scalia chair. All right. Dan, this has been so great. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Oh, it's great. Uh, I, it's, it's a pleasure. I, uh, 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 you don't need advertisements for your podcast <laughs> and video cast, whatever the uh, cast it is. But, uh, but I, hope, uh, I hope they will. And, and read his book, those of you who haven't already. <laughs> that, 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 thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. And good luck. Um, and I had the sense you maybe you'll be back in Deaning someday. We'll see. <laughs> We'll see. I'm going to demur, as we say. I think we need more deans like you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. You bet. Okay.